It's my privilege today to welcome back to our pulpit a son of our church whom you know well, Ryan McCormick, who's been in the area doing training with CCO, and I'm sure he's going to talk to us a little bit about what he's doing at Penn uh, with CCO. But he's going to be preaching for us this morning, and his text is Esther 4, for such a time as this, and I'm going to take the privilege of reading that uh, aloud. It's uh, Esther 4. It's found on page 356 in your pew Bibles, reading from the New International Version. Esther 4. When Mordecai learned of all that had been done, he tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the city wailing loudly and bitterly. But he went only as far as the king's gate because no one clothed in sackcloth was allowed to enter it. In every province in which the edict and the order of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and wailing. Many lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's maids and eunuchs came and told her about Mordecai, she was in great distress. She sent clothes to him to put on him instead of his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther summoned Hathach, one of the king's eunuchs, and assigned to her, and ordered him to find out what was troubling Mordecai and why. So Hathach went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him everything that had happened to him, including the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict for their annihilation, which had been published in Susa to show Esther and to explain it to her, and he told him to urge her to go into the king's presence and beg for mercy and plead with him for her people. Hathach took the word, the, the word Hathach went back and reported to Esther what Mordecai had said. Then she instructed him to say to Mordecai, all the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that he be put to death. The only exception to this is for the king to extend the gold scepter to him and spare his life. But 30 days have passed since I was called to the king. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to the royal position for such a time as this. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go, gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day, and my maids will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away and carried out all of Esther's instructions. Please welcome to our pulpit, Ryan McCormick. Thank you, Tanner, for uh, those kind words of introduction. And it's always a pleasure to be back here at Westminster with all of you and a pleasure to share God's word with you this morning. Please pray with me. May the words of my mouth, O God, and the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. 
So this morning, I hope by looking at this story of Esther um, that all of us can um, rediscover uh, the classical Christian virtue of courage. Uh, Now, there are many self-help books out there, uh, many of them Christian, that talk about the virtue of courage. But very often what happens is when people or when self-help books are talking about courage, uh, what they're really talking about is things like having better self-confidence or being more assertive than others. And all these are very good quality traits to have. Uh, They're perfectly good ones. But at the same time, they're not the same thing as genuine moral courage. You see, all these, tra- all these traits are techniques for making our lives better. They help you get promotions at work or not be taken advantage of by others. Again, all good things. But none of them will teach you how to do what is right, even when doing what is right will make your life objectively worse. I would submit that you cannot be a just person, You cannot be a loving person. You cannot be a generous person in any and all circumstances unless you possess genuine courage. Why do I say that? Well, I say that because of our universal experience of fear. Fear is one of our most basic instincts. Fear is simply our brain's natural response to something dangerous in our environment. It alerts us to threats and it prompts us to avoid them whenever possible. Fear can be good. It is necessary for our survival. Fear is how our ancestors survived things like saber-toothed tigers and woolly mammoths. But all too frequently in life, fear is a problem, isn't it? Our instinct to flee, to preserve ourselves, often conflicts with doing what we ought to do when what we ought to do is dangerous. To see this, let's just simply think back to a moment of fear that all of us have experienced in our lives, high school. I'm sure every one of us have been in this situation in high school uh, where there's a group of bullies and they're picking on a kid. Maybe it's on the bus, maybe it's in the hallway. Uh, They're saying cruel things about the way this person looks, the way they dress, uh, the fact that they don't have any friends, the fact that they're nerdy or have weird hobbies. And you feel compassion for this person. You see that what these people are doing is wrong. And there are two things you can do in this situation. First, you can stick up for your fellow student, but in the process you run the risk of having the bully's cruelty turned against you as well. You lose your popularity, your social standing. You open yourself to being bullied in the future, perhaps. The second option, the most natural course of action, uh, is to listen to the fear that is pulsing through your body that says this situation is threatening, and you keep quiet, or you move on. And typically, we go with option two. We give in to fear. But in moments like these, giving in to fear is not the right thing to do. Like, giving in to fear whenever you're confronted with a bear is the right thing to do. And so keeping us from doing the right thing is our terror. Thus, in order to do what we ought to do, even in terrifying circumstances, we need a power that can push back against our fear and keep us from yielding to being afraid. 
And this power is what we call the virtue of courage. And we recognize and value this virtue from a very young age. From childhood, we know what it is to be afraid. And we also know and value people who are braver than us, older kids, our parents. This is why the Bible stories that resonate uh, most strongly with children are about courageous heroes in dangerous situations. So there's Moses standing up to Pharaoh, my personal favorite from when I was a child. There's David fighting Goliath. There's Daniel in the lion's den. Then there's the story that we're looking at this morning, the story of Esther. A central theme that runs through the entire Bible is that doing what is right requires courage because doing the right thing all too often puts us in peril. And this is the story of Esther. Just to recap uh, very quickly, uh, the story of Esther up to this point, uh, Esther is a young girl um, living in the Persian Empire. She's a Jew, a, a member of God's people. And uh, there's the king of Persia, whose wife displeases him because his wife does not come to a feast whenever she's called upon. And so the king, in anger, casts off his wife and banishes him. But soon he begins to miss his wife. And so his ministers around him say, hey, you're the king. Uh, We can get you a new wife. And so they send uh, people out into the empire, and they bring all of the beautiful young women to the king so that he can choose from them uh, a new wife. And one of those girls is Esther. And in the course of this uh, trial where uh, the king is selecting the wife, uh, Esther does very well because she is the most beautiful woman in the empire and she works her way up all the way to the point where the king is so pleased with her that he makes her her queen. But then there's another story going on in Esther. Uh, There's the story of her uncle, uh, who's also her guardian, Mordecai, uh, and the story of Haman, the the Agathite. And one day, um, when uh, Haman, who is elevated to essentially be the prime minister of the empire, is going out of the palace, and all the people are standing before him, all of them bow before him except for one, except except for Mordecai, who refuses to bow to Haman. And so what Haman does in his rage is he finds out who Mordecai's people are, discovers that they are the Jews, and goes to the king with a plan that he is going to annihilate all the Jews in the empire. And then we come to where we are here in the passage that Towner read for us all this morning, uh, where Mordecai has learned about this plot, and he is bitter. He is upset. And then he goes to Esther, the queen, and tells Esther... You are the queen. You are in a position of authority. Intercede to the king for us that you might save your people. And Esther's response very simply is, if I go to the king, I will perish. I will die. But of course, as the story goes on, um, Esther finds her courage. Esther says, if I perish, I perish. And she goes before the king. And wonder of wonders, the king extends his scepter to Esther And the story goes on from there, uh, where she saves her people and turns the tables on Haman. And so thinking about the courage of Esther in this story, I want us to think about two very practical things about courage this morning. Uh, What courage is, and then how we get courage. What courage is, and how we get courage. So first, what is courage? 
Well, very simply, courage is not the absence of fear. Rather, courage is the overcoming of our fear. And this is very important to note because very often we only think that it is fearful people who need courage. But that's not true. Yes, it's certainly true that people who are cowardly, people who let their fear control them, lack courage. Uh, But people who are oblivious to fear lack courage as well. People who seem supposedly naturally courageous, who charge ahead on thinking into danger, need courage every every little bit as much as the cowardly person. Why? Well, because paradoxically, fear is a necessary ingredient for our courage. Uh, if If courage is the overcoming of fear, then fear must be present to have true courage. Fear, as I said, is a natural instinct. It's the way that we identify threats in our environment. And so you don't want to be without fear, even when you are trying to be brave. Uh, People who lack fear, who don't identify danger, are not brave, but they are reckless. Courage does what is right. Recklessness does what is stupid. I recently read this story about a woman uh, who had a rare condition called Urbach-Vitha disease. And this disease, it affects the the brainstem, the amygdala, amygdala, in such a way uh, that people with this condition lack the sensation of courage, or excuse me, lack the sensation of fear. And so this woman in this story lacks the quick, subconscious, and visceral response Uh, that the rest of us experience whenever we're exposed to danger. And as a result, she has a tendency to put herself in very bad situations. So once there was a man who was sitting on a park bench, and he asked her to come sit by her. And this woman, lacking the instinct that automatically tells us, do not sit next to strange men in park benches, uh, immediately does so, only for the man to pull out a knife and threaten her with it. Uh, so you don't want to be like this woman and lack, courage, or lack fear. It's an extreme example, um, but there are many people who, while not completely lacking fear, nevertheless have a natural tendency to ignore fear. Instead, they always listen to the instinct that tells us to fight, to charge in. And this lack of fear, far from making them braver people, leads them to do stupid and dangerous things. This is the truth of the ancient saying that discretion is the better part of valor. And so notice in the story that for Esther, courage doesn't mean not being afraid. Esther is very, very cognizant of the danger that she is in, of what Mordecai is asking her to do. When Mordecai asks her to go and intercede uh, on behalf of the Jews, Esther's immediate response is a fearful one. She says to Mordecai, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law, to be put to death. And as for me, I have not been called to come to the king these 30 days. So this is Esther's initial response to Mordecai. It's a a response that is fixated on the danger of what Mordecai is asking her to do. If Esther wasn't afraid, if she wasn't cognizant of her danger, uh, 
she wouldn't be the heroine of this story. She would just be reckless. Courage has discretion. And Esther, as the story goes on to show us, is a woman of discretion. So true courage discerns danger rather than ignoring danger. True courage is in touch with fear. It listens to fear. But at the same time, courage is not mastered by fear. If you only ever fixate on the danger and become consumed by your fear, then indeed you will be a coward rather than being courageous. Esther also wouldn't be the heroine of this story if she didn't fight through her very legitimate fears and do what was required of her in this moment to save her people. Esther's initial response to Mordecai is to be afraid. But her courageous response to Mordecai's plea is, I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. So how do we get this courage? How do we get the courage to face our fears and to do the right thing, even when it means saying, like Esther, if I perish, I perish? Well, I would submit that in order to be courageous, uh, we need to do three things. We need to think, we need to, or, excuse me, we need to feel, we need to think, and then we need to do. We need to feel, because courage originates from a righteous anger. We need to think, because we need to know that our courage is grounded in a truth that is bigger than ourselves. And we need to do, because courage is only ever built up in small steps. So first, fear, f- feel. Courage is motivated by a righteous anger. Feelings are actually an important part of our character. One good element of character is having the right emotional response to situations. So if I witness a car crash, the appropriate emotional response is to feel sad for that person. It's not to feel humor, right? Likewise, uh, we saw earlier that the appropriate emotional response to danger is fear. And the appropriate emotional response to whenever we see evil in the world is anger. Anger is the emotion that says things ought not to be like this. And so courage is energized by a righteous anger. Righteous anger is simply this, a fierce indignation at evil in the world. It hates evil. It wants to fight evil. And the courage that Mordecai and Esther embark on to save the Jews originates precisely with Mordecai's anger in this story. Mordecai, at the start of this chapter, is filled with a righteous indignation. Look at how the story describes Mordecai. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes, and he went out into the midst of the city, and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. Mordecai goes into the middle of the city. He puts on the clothing associated with mourning, sackcloth and ashes, but he doesn't mourn. The text doesn't even say that he weeps. Instead, he cries out with a loud and bitter cry. This is an angry cry. Mordecai is outraged at the evil that is going to be perpetrated against the Jews at the hand of Haman. I mean, we think of it, Haman is essentially an ancient version of Adolf Hitler. 
Very often we think of anger as being a bad thing. But the Bible depicts God as burning with anger against injustice and waging war against evil. So Psalm 18 says of God, Smoke went up from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth. Glowing coals flamed forth from him. The Lord also thundered in the heavens and the Most High uttered his voice. He sent out arrows and scattered them. He flashed forth lightning and routed them. God has burning indignation against evil. God has wrath against evil. And the Bible calls us to be like God and be angry when evil is perpetrated in the world. The follower of the law in Psalm 119 says, Hot indignation seizes me because of the wicked, and I hate and abhor falsehood. When we come across evil in the world, are we angry at it? Do you feel the impulse to fight against injustice and wickedness when you see them in action. Hot indignation is Mordecai's response to evil in the story of Esther. And his righteous indignation is the fuel of his and Esther's courage. You see, courage is the most visceral of the virtues. Ancient people associated courage with the bowels, which is reflected whenever we say, that person really has guts. So courage is earthy. It springs from our emotions and our instincts. So therefore, to be courageous, we need to kick our physical selves into action. We see this very simply um, whenever we're afraid of what other people think about us. If we're in a situation where we need to be bold, we need to speak up, maybe even confront another person, but are worried about the opinion of other people, Typically, it isn't something mental that holds us back. We know what the right thing to do is. We even know that we shouldn't be intimidated by other people. But it's our body that holds us back. Our throats can't form the right words. Our muscles freeze and keep us from crossing the room. And so to be courageous, we need something deeply visceral to kick us into action. And having a sense of righteous indignation at wrong is how we overcome that physical paralysis that keeps us from being brave. There's a very uh, great historical example of this. Um, On the eve of the attacks on Pearl Harbor at the start of the Second World War, uh, most Americans actually wanted to stay out of the war. The Army and the Navy were short on recruits. Nobody wanted to fight. But then everything changed in an instant because the Japanese bombed American soil. People were angry that the Japanese would do something like this. And the effect was incredible. Within 24 hours, enlistment offices were full to the brim. Uh, An office in Birmingham, Alabama, for example, had 600 men volunteer within hours of the attack. Uh, Many of them were even too young to enlist. Boston's recruitment offices had hundreds waiting in lines for hours. People who would have been paralyzed even at the thought of crossing the threshold of a recruitment office were suddenly pouring in, all because they sensed that what had been done to them, to the country, had been unjust, even evil, even, even evil, and they were indignant about it. 
And this righteous anger is what fueled the courage of millions of men and women who fought against totalitarianism in the Second World War. But we have to be careful here. Anger is like our fear. It is something we should listen to without surrendering ourselves to. In Ephesians 4, Paul quotes Psalm 37.8 and says, Be angry and do not sin. What Paul means here is that we can be legitimately angry without sinning. But we need to be careful that we are angry and not sin. So how do we do that? Well, Paul says very simply, do not let the sun go down on your anger. In other words, Paul is saying, be angry, be furious at evil, but don't let your anger take control of you. And you know when your anger has taken control of you, whenever you go to bed and you're still angry. The name for this kind of anger is not indignation, but rage. Rage is untamed, uncontrollable anger. The the anger that a nation felt that provided it with the courage to fight tyranny in World War II is also the anger that unjustly set over 100,000 Japanese Americans to internment camps during the war. And so for this reason, we can't only feel our way to courage. We can't only rely on our anger. Anger by itself is insufficient and even dangerous. And so we need to think to be courageous. And so secondly, we need to think. Courage is grounded in something bigger than ourselves, a truth that is bigger than ourselves. The second key to courage is knowing uh, that courage is grounded in a moral vision that is universal and transcends circumstances. Mordecai motivates Esther to be courageous by telling her two things. First, he says to Esther, if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. And then secondly, he tells her, who knows whether or not you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. And these things seem contradictory. On the one hand, uh, Mordecai is saying the deliverance of the Jews does not depend on Esther. And yet, on the other hand, Esther, he is saying, has been elevated to the kingdom precisely so that she can deliver the Jews. The paradox that Mordecai is getting at here is this. First, there is a power at work in the world that is infinitely greater than Esther, that is infinitely greater than us such that the balance of good and evil in the world doesn't ultimately depend on our own ability, but on this power. And yet, secondly, precisely because there is such a great transcendent power at work in the world, that Esther ought to have every confidence that such a power is mighty enough to call us and to work through us to do courageous things. What Mordecai is talking about here is the mystery of God's steadfast love for us. The central conviction running through the story of the Old Testament is that the infinite and almighty God has bound himself to us always, no matter how great the evil or how grave the circumstances. God will not allow evil and wickedness to triumph over goodness in the world. The ongoing story of God's faithfulness to his people throughout the Old Testament, the story of Abraham, of the Exodus, of King David, 
is the much greater story that Esther and Mordecai base their courage upon. That the battle between good and evil ultimately belongs to God. And Mordecai reminds Esther in this moment that her life belongs to the love and power of God that transcends whatever threats or dangers we could possibly face in life. And yet he also reminds her that precisely because we belong to such a power, we are empowered to step out in courage. History is in God's hands, yes. Its conclusion is the result of the works of his might. But he uses people like us, people like Esther, to do his great works. Thus Esther's second response to Mordecai, her courageous response is, I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. In this moment, Esther is surrendering her life, not just for her people, but to her God. If I perish, I perish. To be courageous like Esther, you need to be grounded in a truth and a power that is bigger than yourselves. If you're not, you will lack motivation to be courage. To be courageous, you need to know that your courage will not be in vain, that it is meaningful, despite whatever the outcome of your actions might be. Like I said earlier, when we are afraid, we have very good reasons to be afraid. And being courageous opens us up to the very real possibility that we will suffer loss at the hands of the peril that we are facing, or even that we might fail entirely. And unless your life is based on some larger moral vision that transcends circumstances, it makes no sense whatsoever to stick your neck out in courage. And there is nothing in this world that is great enough to base true courage upon. Because nothing in this world can overcome the final act of death. Death is the great destroyer of courage because death is the ultimate danger, the ultimate peril, threatening us with the ultimate loss, to perish completely. Christianity, however, offers us something greater than the world, something that we can base our courage upon, a hope that overcomes even death, the ultimate outworking of God's power in the world, the power of resurrection. To see how the power of resurrection can motivate us to courage, we need to look at Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. When he, like Esther, is preparing himself for the ultimate act of self-sacrifice for his people, Jesus was deeply afraid, to the point of anguish even, the Gospels tell us praying to God, may this cup pass from me. But unlike Esther, he knows that there is no hope of a providential rescue from death. The cup will not pass from him. And yet knowing the death and self-sacrifice before, before him, Jesus prayed to the Father this prayer, not my will be done, but yours. You can almost hear here an echo of Esther's words, if I perish, I perish. Jesus courageously confronts in this moment the powers of hell itself, knowing that it will lead to his death. Why? Because Jesus trusts in the power of God, the power of God that can even raise the dead. 
Jesus knows that out of his defeat and death, God will ultimately bring life and victory because the battle between good and evil belongs to God. And if our life is bound to Christ and to the power of his resurrection, then we can pray with him, not my will be done, but yours. We might even say with Esther, if I perish, I perish. One stanza of the hymn, Jesus lives and so shall I, says, Jesus lives and death is now, but my entry into glory. Courage then, my soul, for thou hast a crown of life before thee. Now this sounds daunting, I know. We often become discouraged when we try to do something extremely dangerous and we fail. Such great courage seems utterly beyond our power and we wonder if we could ever say those dreadfully wonderful words with Esther. But the way to begin to build up great courage is not to try and have the courage of Esther now, but to practice small acts of courage. And this is point number three. It's what we are called to do to be courageous. You will only become courageous if you practice acting courageously. And courage cannot be turned on like turning on a switch. Courage, like all character traits, only comes with long time and effort. Building character like courage is like preparing for a race. A few years ago, uh, I ran in the Pittsburgh Half Marathon. Uh, And none of us who were running the half marathon just showed up at the race and, without any training, ran the 13.1 miles. Instead, running that distance required endurance training, where you gradually built up your endurance so you could run the half marathon. And so first, you ran three miles. Then you ran five miles, then seven, and then so forth, until you were able to run that full 13.1 miles. And so in order to have the courage to obey God in moments of crisis, we need to make little leaps of courage every day. We see this in the story of Esther. We often think that the story of Esther is a fairy tale, where Esther gets to marry her prince and live in a castle and live happily ever after. But this isn't her story at all. Uh, the, prince of per- the king of Persia is not her Prince Charming. At the beginning of the book of, of Esther, Esther is probably in her late teens, 16, 17, 18. And she's a girl of extraordinary beauty. And the king, who has just banished one of his wives for or, or subordination, decides that he wants a pretty submissive woman to replace Queen Vashti, the banished queen. And so, since he's the king... He can take any woman who he desires. And so the king sends out his men into the provinces and snatches up all the beautiful women to be part of his harem, including Esther. Now, can you imagine her situation? Can you imagine the fear that comes from being thrusted into this world, from being taken from the home and the family that you know to serve the pleasure and satisfaction of an authoritarian monarch? But it's even worse for Esther because Esther is a Jew. And Jews, per the Mosaic law, are not supposed to marry pagans. And pagans don't like Jews in return. Pagans persecute the Jews, hence Haman. Esther's position is so dangerous that Mordecai has Esther keep her ethnicity and religion a complete secret. And yet, despite all this, 
despite belonging to a despised uh, social group or religious group, despite being seized from the, the home that she knew, Esther not only survives, she thrives. She becomes queen. Esther's life up until the discovery of Haman's plot against the Jews has consisted of daily small acts of courage. And so when the decisive moment for courage comes, Esther is able to undertake the bravest act of her entire life. Valor is not automatic, as we saw. All courage fights through fear. Running through a marathon is not automatic either. But the training makes it possible. What are the daily moments where you are called to be courageous? What are the little things that make you stressed and worried on a daily basis? I want you to picture a few of them in your mind right now. What are the things that cause you fear each day? And how can you, with a reliance on the grace and power of God, live faithfully and courageously in each of these daily moments? First Peter says, Therefore let those who are suffering according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. And so this week, entrust your souls to a faithful creator by each day tackling one thing, just one thing, that makes you afraid. One good act that fear normally keeps you from committing. I want to close with this encouraging reflection. The noteworthy thing about the book of Esther is its realism. If you read through the book of Esther, you will notice that the name of God is not mentioned once. In this way, it's very different from the book of Daniel that is set in a very similar context. Uh, in Daniel, God protects Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from the fiery furnace. God shuts the lion's mouths for Daniel. But we don't get any such miracles or divine intervention direct divine intervention in the book of Esther. Instead, we get people who take courage not from miraculous interventions in the world, but from the ordinary providence of God in the world. They take courage in the fact that perhaps they have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Please pray with me. God, our Father, we are thankful for these words, the words that speak life to us, the words of the power of your resurrection life. And so we pray, Lord, this week that we would be a people of courage who go out into the world unafraid to serve you and do what is right. We pray this with a humble reliance upon the grace of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.